in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful this evening, this morning, that we are free from guilt, free from sin. Those of us who are in Christ by faith alone have no condemnation to dread. In Christ, we are free. We have life, we have hope. Because of your grace alone. We thank you, even as was mentioned, for the freedom to gather and to worship, to respond to all that you've done for us in Christ this morning. We thank you for those who have made the sacrifice to go and to serve so that we can meet, so that we can worship, so that we can have freedom. Praise you this morning for all that you have given us, Father. All that is ours in Christ. As we gather around your word, as we worship this morning, we pray that you would be lifted up, that you would be honored, that your spirit would work in each one of us, accomplishing your purposes for your glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I remember as a high schooler when I got my first car, and I remember around that time I'm getting new freedoms, I'm starting to expand out a little bit, and I remember my parents sitting me down and having this discussion with me. Remember who you are. You have this new freedom, and as you, as you go out, right, as you use this car that we've gotten you and, you, and you go out and you spend time with your friends and, and we're not able to you know, watch you all the time, Remember who you are. You're a Robinson. Right? My, my name's attached to your name. Remember that. More importantly, remember that you're a believer. Remember that you have a testimony, that others are watching you. Don't forget who you are. This morning as we come to Galatians 4, Paul kind of has this discussion with the Galatians. Don't forget who you are. Know your identity in Christ. Don't get confused. Don't forget. As we work our way through these 10 verses, 21 to 31, we'll see three things. He starts in verse 21 with a question. It's a very blunt question. Almost an offensive question. And then he moves on in verses 22 to 27 to an illustration that helps to explain what he is saying. And then in verses 28 to 31, he applies it. Application. So we'll be looking this morning at Galatians 4, 21 to 31. It says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. 
But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem which is free, which is the mother of us all, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. As I mentioned, the first thing that Paul starts with here is a question in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? It's blunt. It's offensive. Even the first part, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, is a statement that would have grabbed their attention. You who desire to be under the law. They might say, well, I don't necessarily desire to be under the law. I just think that's the way it's supposed to be. And Paul is saying, no, you desire to be under the law. You are seeking it out. You are going out of your way to put yourself under the law by adding it to the gospel, to the grace of God. And so you who are doing this, you who are placing yourselves under the law, who are desiring to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Do you not understand what you are asking for? Do you have any idea what you're doing? Are you paying attention? Teachers tell you that there's no such thing as a stupid question. Fathers will tell you there is a such thing as a stupid question. I remember more than one occasion where I'd ask my dad a question and he would say, all right, slow down. Ask that question again, this time slowly, and think through what you're saying. And I'd realize that it was a stupid question. And that's what Paul is saying here. Do you, do you realize what you're saying? Slow down and think through this. Think of another illustration. I, I know I use my kids a lot to give illustrations, but they're living illustrations. And the older two, Clinton and Judah, there's times sometimes where they'll be eating and it'll be something they don't necessarily like or they, 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 they want to get up and go play. And so they say, Mom, Dad, I, I'm done. And we'll say, well, you need to take two more big bites. But the funny thing is, sometimes Clinton and Judah will look at me and say, but Dad, I'm four. I want to take four bites. Okay. <laughs> right, I, I'm fine with that. It's one of those things when you can stop and you can say, all right, Clinton and Judah, stop. Think, right? You're adding expectation to what I said. It's easier just to go with what I said to begin with. Two, 
And that's understandable for a four-year-old, right? Someone who's just learning to count. They're learning numbers. They're starting to grasp this. But it's offensive for Paul to be talking to these Galatians in this way. Do you not hear the law? And it's rightfully offensive because they are being foolish in what they are seeking. Do you not understand it? Have you not taken the time to think through this? Because the very law that you are putting yourself under, it itself stands in opposition to what you're claiming. It doesn't even back up your claim. And so he starts with this question. Do you not get this? Are you not thinking with me? Then he moves to an illustration. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. The one to buy a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic. It's a story that we know, the story of Ishmael and Isaac. The one by a bondwoman, Hagar, is Ishmael. It's recorded for us in Genesis 16. And if you remember the story, God has come to Abraham and He said, I will give you a, a seed, an heir, a people. But Abraham's sitting there. And he's looking around and he's looking at his age and he's looking at the age of his wife and he's saying, i got to make this work. God said I'm going to have an heir, but as I, as I look around, there's, there's no way. So I have to take things into my hand. I have to make this work. I have to keep God's promise for him. So what does he do? Sarah gives him her servant, Hagar, the Egyptian, and Abraham goes with her and produces an heir. But the story goes on, the other by a free woman. Fourteen years later, in Genesis 21, God fulfills his promise and he does give Abraham an heir through his wife Sarah. And verse 23 kind of sums this up He who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. He was born by natural causes. He was born by, by Abraham's effort. But he, but he of the free woman through promise. He was born not by natural causes. He was born because God said He would be born. He was born because God is faithful because God had made a promise and God kept that promise. I think one of the things we see here is the simple fact that we don't have to keep God's promises for Him. When God makes a promise, no matter how unlikely it seems, no matter what it looks like, we don't have to keep God's promises for Him. We don't have to keep God from being a liar because He's not a liar. He's a faithful God and what He says will happen. Isaac came through promise. 
Romans 4, verses 30, 13 to 20. Kind of discuss this again, and there it says, Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope believed. The second time God comes to him, he says, I am going to give you a son. And now he's, he's 14 years older. It seems even less likely than it was. But this time, contrary to hope and hope he believes, beyond any hope whatsoever, he believes. He's learned his lesson, and this time he trusts. In fact, Romans 4 uses the language of death. Sarah's womb was dead. There was absolutely no hope whatsoever, except for God. Did a little bit of research this week. The oldest person to give birth on record. By natural conception, it was in 1997, a woman by the name of Don Brooke was 59 years old. She gave birth. When you include in vitro fertilization, there's two 66-year-old women who gave birth. And there was a woman in India who was 74 years old and gave birth to twins a few years ago in 2009. That is amazing. But what God did was even beyond that. It was, it was years beyond that. It was not natural. It was through promise. It was because God made a promise and God kept that promise. Verse 24, which things are symbolic. It's a true story. These things really happen. But, but I, Paul, am using them symbolically to make this point. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has the right to make whatever he wants symbolic. We do not. But here, Paul does. He's using this story under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show this point. He's using it symbolically. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. This is not the first time in, in this book that Paul has compared and contrasted these two covenants. If you remember, in Galatians 3, 15-22... Paul takes the covenant of promise, God's covenant, his promise to Abraham, and the covenant of law at Sinai, and he compares them. And do you remember that passage when he shows that the covenant of promise, the promises that I made to Abraham, they are superior to the covenant of law. The promises that I made to Abraham are still intact. In fact, the, the promises that I made in the law, the covenant of law, does not replace them, rather comes alongside and helps to fulfill that, to lead to that. Here, once again, Paul is comparing these two, but this time he's using this, this story of Hagar and Sarah. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. The law gives birth to bondage, it leads to condemnation which is Hagar. Verse 25, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. Again, that's a strong statement. 
What he's saying is that Jerusalem, the temple, Judaism, they're under bondage. They've placed themselves under the law. It's in bondage with her children, but the Jerusalem above heaven, what is promised, is free. It's by grace, not by law, which is the mother of us all, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. It's a passage from Isaiah 54, Isaiah 54, 1. And in the context, he's, he's talking about Israel in exile, Israel in, in the dispersion. And at the beginning of this, he's saying, you, you're, you're barren, you do not bear. You have no hope, but rejoice, for God is not done with you. Back to the story with Abraham. Is that not what God said to Abraham? I have promised you an heir. Look past your circumstances. Look past your age. Look past everything that science tells you. Trust me. I've promised it. I will do it. Israel in exile. Look past your circumstances. You're not in your land. You don't have a temple. But I'm not done with you. Look past your circumstances and rejoice because I am not done with you. I will deliver you. For I have promised it. What we see in this illustration is, is two things. Law and grace. And law says two things about God. It just says two things in general. It says, first, I'm not that bad. I'm, I am good enough. The distance between a holy God and me is not that far. And secondly, God's not that great. Is that not what Abraham said? When God said, I will give you an heir, and Abraham's looking around... And Abraham is thinking, okay, I have to do this. What's he saying there? I can do it. God can't. I'm not that bad. God's not that great. What does faith say? Faith says I am that bad. Faith says that gulf between a, a holy God and me is infinite. And there's no hope Except that secondly, that God is great. God can span that gap. God can do what he has promised. And we see that in, in Abraham's life, in this story. With Ishmael, he doesn't trust. He does things himself. With Isaac, he does trust and lets God do it. Then he comes to application in verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, our children promise. 
children of promise. This is God's doing. It's not ours. We can't do this ourselves. But, as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Back to the story with Ishmael and Isaac. If you remember, in Genesis 21, 9, Ishmael is, is tormenting Isaac. And Sarah sees that. And in verse 10 of, of chapter 21 of Genesis, and verse 30 here, Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Sarah comes to Abraham and she says this. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. The son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. What Paul is saying here is that, that as, as Ishmael tormented Isaac, so these Judaizers are tormenting you. But cast them out. Have nothing to do with them. It's interesting, actually, when you think about it. Persecution is actually what you would expect from someone who believes in salvation by works. When your standard is works, then how do you get others to conform to your standard? You force them. You persecute them. If, if I believe that you have to do something in order to have salvation, then I'm going to do whatever it takes to make you do that. But if your standard is faith, if it's grace, then you don't force others to conform. You show them grace. You reason with them in Scripture, and you allow God to bring them to faith. And that's exactly what we see here in, earlier in chapter 4 in verses 8 to 20 when Paul's contrasting how I dealt with you versus how these Judaizers dealt with you. And do you remember that passage? And he's saying, I was, I was gentle with you. I was kind to you. I labored alongside you. I loved you. Look how awful they're treating you. They just want you to conform to what they want. They don't care about you. I care about you. Again, that's the difference between law and gospel. Law and grace. Law cares about what you do. Grace cares about who you are. Paul says, cast them out. Have nothing to do with them. Their end is condemnation. They add nothing to you. You're an heir. You're an heir of God in Christ. Cling to that. Let them go. They demand to be judged by their works, and they will be judged by their works, and they will come up short. But you are an heir of God in Christ. Have nothing to do with them. And he ends this, this section of verse 31. With, with a triumphant statement. I, I have made my point. I rest my case. So then, brethren, we're not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. 
It goes back to verse, chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. In chapter 4, he's been proving that point. He's been showing that you are Abraham's seed by faith. Heirs according to the promise by faith in Christ. And he comes to the end of chapter 4 and he makes this statement. So then, this is it. I've proved it. I rest my case. We're not children of the bondwoman. We are children of the free in Christ by faith. Paul's whole point in these 10 verses, know who you are. Know your identity in Christ. You're not under bondage. You're not under condemnation. You are free. You're an heir. You have an inheritance in Christ. Chapter 5, Paul will dive much more in depth onto what it means to be free, what it looks like. But for now, remember who you are in Christ. Remember what is yours in Christ. Don't allow ritual to infringe upon what is freely yours in Christ. Guard your freedom. Guard your identity. Unless we judge these Judaizers too harshly, we must think to ourselves how easy it is to fall into a pattern of ritual. How often do we fall into a pattern? How often do we look to our actions instead of looking to Christ? It's so easy. It's so easy to to come to the end of the day and feel good about myself because I went to two services at church. I think there's a couple of examples that, that hit home with us, if we're honest with ourselves, where it's easy for us to fall into a pattern of ritual. Two to pop directly to my mind are communion and baptism. Those are great things. Those are good things, but, but they're for us. They're not for God. We don't take communion to, to gain favor with God. To please God. We don't, we don't baptize to please God. They call us to remember. They encourage us to be excited for Christ's return. They allow us to publicly identify with Christ. Communion and baptism take us back to the gospel. But how many churches have turned baptism into ritual? How many churches cling to their baptism for salvation rather than to Christ? To the very thing that baptism points to. How many people cling to their communion? To the fact that they took the bread and drank the drink rather than the fact that they're trusting in Christ. The very thing that it points to. We don't practice communion or baptism to impress God, to gain favor with God. We practice them to encourage our faith, to bring us back to the gospel, to remind us what it is we are doing and why we are doing it. 
Even for us, we don't look to communion and we don't look to baptism. We know that those things aren't, don't, aren't what save us, but how often do they just become a ritual to us? How often do we go through them without thinking? How often do we just feel good about ourselves afterward and we haven't taken the time to think through what we are doing and why we are doing it? Maybe something more applicable, something I already talked about, church attendance. It's important. It's of the utmost importance. Don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Be here. But don't be here because it's going to make God more happy with you. Don't be here because, because you're trying to, to impress God. Be here because you need it. Be here so that you can grow in your faith. So that you can be sanctified through the, 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 the word. So that you can use the gifts that God has given you so that you can serve one another. There's many more things, the way, the way we dress, the music we play, the, the reason we do this and this and this, and they are all good things, and we have good reasons for them, but we must guard ourselves from falling into ritual. We must remember why we do what we do. They're all a response to what God has done for us in Christ. And herein lies the difference between law and grace. Law, I do these to impress God. Grace, I do these because of what God has already done for me. Law demands from God. Grace responds to God. And we must keep that straight. We must guard ourselves. We must be purposeful in our worship. We must know what we are doing and why we are doing it. We must know who we are. We are free in Christ. We're going to close with the song before the throne of God above.